This morning is January 8th. It is Sunday morning. I am excited to be in the house of God. And our message is going to be called Dealing with Amalek. Dealing with Amalek. In Exodus 13, starting in verse 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. A couple things you should glean from this passage. (laughs) One is, God rarely ever takes you on the shortest road to get anywhere. The shortest road doesn't teach you what you need to know. They were armed for battle the day they left Egypt. Armed. And what did God say? I'm going to take them the long way around so they don't face too much battle. I don't want my people to be discouraged. I want you to get this. God does not want you to be discouraged. This is why over and over and over in the Pentateuch you hear this one phrase. Be strong and courageous for the Lord thy God is with thee. Be strong. Be courageous. You want to know what God wants of you? He wants you to be strong and courageous. Now, could people be strong and courageous without God? Absolutely. This is where all the other Scriptures about walking humbly and loving justice and loving mercy come in. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. But in the Lord, you are supposed to be strong and courageous. If when you look in the mirror, you don't see strong and courageous change. We have the life-changing power of God. Change. Decide in that moment, I will be strong. I will be courageous. Nothing is too hard for me. God is in me. This is a divine imperative command. It's not optional in the kingdom. Not optional at all. It appears over... You know, over 218 times in the Bible, you're told to be joyful? 218 times. You're not told Jesus is Lord that many times. You're not told that Jesus was raised from the dead that many times. How about the passage in the New Testament says, Be joyful, pray without ceasing. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, we all talk about how Christians should pray. They should read the Word. Christians should be joyful. So, well, I don't feel joyful. It's okay. Get joyful. Do it in faith. Do it in faith. Fake it until it's a reality. I don't really care. Just do it. There's a reason for this. You were born for spiritual contention with those who are opposed to God. Adam had the task of subduing the creation, and he failed, at least initially. But in Christ, we will see God's kingdom advance until His will is obeyed on earth the same way it is in heaven. You were born for warfare. Spiritual contention. You are supposed to be locked in battle with the kingdom of darkness every day. Whether you want to be or not, you are. What did Jesus say the enemy came to do? Steal, kill, and destroy. That is what he's in the business of doing. He is a liar, and lies are the chief tools in which he uses to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy your life and your loved one's lives. 
He wants to keep you from getting good things from God. He wants to snuff out your life. And most of all, He wants to keep you from giving good things to other people. That's what He wants to do. He's in the full-time business of it. You know, an old lady was once asked, they said, pastor said to her, you know, you never seem to say anything negative about anybody. I love that about you, sweetheart. That's wonderful. Tell me something, though. Do you even have anything bad to say about the devil? She paused. She looked at the ground. She goes, he's busy. (laughs) It's true. The devil is busy. The Bible presents him seeking people to devour. Seeking them. You get to choose whether or not you'll be armed, strong, courageous, or whether or not you'll be victimized, pitiable, outcast, out of the kingdom. You can choose to be a victim or you can choose to be victorious, but we're all in the fight and you cannot choose to get out. Even if you abandon Christianity, all you've done is place yourself under the power of the devil totally with no hope of success. But you can't get out of this fight. It's there. Might as well learn to win. I may not want to fight with Steve every day. Okay, I may not want to be beat up every day of my life. But if it's an inevitable certainty, if I'm going to have to fight him every day when I leave school, I might as well get good at it, right? So I have a shot at winning. I want to tell you today how to get a shot at winning. I want to teach you a little bit about the enemy as displayed in a specific group of people so that we can learn to win. We're already in the warfare. You don't have a choice. You need to know something. Satan has instruments and they all have similar characteristics. God has those that He has chosen, those that He has given tasks, those that there's a divine purpose on their life. That's a good message, by the way. Chosen, tasked, and purpose. If you can, download it and listen to it this week. It will encourage you. And... Satan has his instruments. And they were chosen by him for a specific reason. They were tasked by him with tasks. They're unaware sometimes that they're being used in this way and there's a purpose on their life. And they all stand in direct opposition to the people of God. Turn to Genesis 36. Satan's instruments. First thing you need to know about Satan's instruments is that they have these characteristics. Genesis 36, I told you to turn there, but I'm going to tell you about it because these are long genealogies. Something happens. God's favor fell upon only one of two sons. Jacob and Esau were two men born in the same household, but they had dramatically different characteristics from birth. Esau was fleshly. The things that he was interested in all had to do with the earth. Even his appearance seemed to reflect that so that it would be easy for dumb people like me to see it later. Okay? God used these men's lives for a purpose. And Esau was the fleshly one. Esau had a son. He had multiple sons and he also had multiple wives. Now, lots of men of God in the Bible had multiple wives and it was for a specific purpose. But in Esau's case, you know what this speaks of? Because they were multiple Canaanite wives. He didn't go get wives from among God's people. He went to the enemy's camp and got wives. This speaks of only gratifying the flesh all of the time. Satan's instruments are used to pleasing themselves. Okay? And so their offspring all have some things in common. Esau had a son, and his son 
had another son. This is how this works. We all propagate something, whether good or bad. And one of these children's name was Amalek. You can read about him in Genesis 36, his beginning. But I want to tell you about Amalek and what Amalek means. People argue and they debate over whether this is the same Amalek that the Amalekites come from. Don't worry yourself with that. The Bible attributes these groups of people as the same. So whether there was an indigenous group of people and the son of Esau's name became associated with them or whether they're all literally descendant from him really doesn't matter. We're talking about Amalekites. Here's what Amalekites means, Amalek or Amalekites. A people that lick up. That's the way the King James says it. A people that lick up. Say, Lord, what on earth is that? We have to understand, in Hebrew, they think of things a little differently than we do. They're very functionally oriented. Okay? And I'm not going to read all of these scriptures to you, but I'll just give you a few so that you'll know. Lick up refers to destruction. In Numbers 22.4, a guy named Balak is speaking, and he says, Man, these Israelites, everywhere they go, they lick up the people that are around them. Well, obviously, Israel didn't run around with their tongue hanging out of their mouth, licking people like a dog. What that speaks of is the way that a dog's tongue goes out and removes something from the bowl and pulls it up. People lick up in destruction. It speaks of destruction. You see that in Numbers 22.4. In Kings 21.19, over Ahab and Jezebel to get across to the world that God was bringing destruction upon them, dogs licked up their blood. That's a way to say the dogs devoured them. They licked up their blood. It's, they, they ravaged them. Then a third time in Isaiah 5, 24, you see fire, tongues of fire, licked up things from the earth. Speaking of total destruction, reaching out, grabbing, and burning up. The Amalekites are a destroying people because they're instruments of Satan. What did Satan come to do? Steal, kill, and destroy. The Amalekites are a destroying people. You know what another definition for them is? Warring people. But don't those two things go hand in hand? People of warfare. They're warring or warlike people. There's a third definition. You know, when you go to Bible dictionaries for people's names, you can see a variety of names, but usually if you look, they're all connected to a central idea. You can learn something from digging into the enemies of Israel. Amalek was a destroying influence in the world, a warring people. And you know what else? The Bible says he dwelled in the valley. Valley dwellers. Amalek means valley dweller. It means destroying. It means warlike people. Now, why would the warlike destroying people dwell in the valleys? The devil rarely opposes you. Rarely opposes you when you're on the mountaintop with God. He waits till some natural circumstances in your life cause you to feel as if you're in the valley. And that is where Amalek is waiting for you. Amalek is above all else an opportunist. When did Satan come to tempt Jesus? When's the first time recorded that Satan came to tempt Jesus? In a desert, right? And Jesus was full of strength and power at that moment, right? No? No? What had Jesus been doing for 40 days and 40 nights? Fasting. There could not have been a more opportune time. The man's physical body was weak. 
Jesus allowed this and the Spirit even led him into this so that at Jesus' weakest moment, he still conquered the most powerful enemy. This was displayed for us. This battle is not about flesh. It's not about your right arm. It's about God's Spirit. And the Bible says that in Zechariah. Something I've taken great joy in. Because everywhere that I lack, it's okay. It's not about my flesh. It's not about my ability to speak, to entertain you, to get things right. It's about my ability to yield to God's Spirit and let Him work through me. Amalek is a warlike people, a devouring people, and he dwells in the valleys. You've heard it said that from, to get from mountaintop to mountaintop, you have to go through the valleys. That may be true. You know, that's accepted wisdom, if you will. But I would argue you sure don't have to stay in the valley. You can choose to get right back up on the mountaintop. You know what Jesus did above all else that proves that? Above everything else, He tore that veil in the temple. And when He rose from the dead, do you remember what some of the first words out of His mouth were to His disciples? Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You have a right not to camp out in the valley because Amalek lives there and he seeks your life. Now, I'm going to talk to you about Amalek this morning. And this is a natural person. But I want you to realize that as much as I'm talking about that natural person, even more so I'm talking about the spirit behind him. You may never meet a physical descendant of Amalek, but I promise you will meet his spiritual seed. Probably when you leave here today. Probably got some in your own family even. These people, uh, descendants of Amalek, Amalekites, were nomadic. They're nomadic, but they lived in the Sinai Peninsula between two places. Anybody have an idea which two places they lived between? Well, when Israel left a place called Egypt, where were they headed? Come on, y'all talk to me this morning. They were headed to the promised land. Guess where Amalek lives in your life and in Israel's life? He lives between Egypt that you're supposed to be leaving and between the promised land which is where you're supposed to be going. you know how we know He lived there? The Bible says that. But isn't it interesting that He's nomadic? Well, how can He live here and be nomadic? Well, it was a big area that they had to cross called the Sinai Peninsula. He lived all over it. What does this tell you? This tells you that the devil lives to oppose you going from where you are to where God wants you. And He's nomadic. Whichever way you go, a little bit to the left to get around Him, a little bit to the right to get around Him, He will always oppose you. The first nation to attack Israel as a newly formed nation, the very first one after they get out of Egypt, is the Amalekites. Did you remember that we read in Exodus 13 that God took them around the Philistine country so that they wouldn't face too much warfare? These people went out of their way to go attack the Israelites. The devil is looking for a chance to destroy you. He's looking for a chance to hurt you, to cripple you. You get to choose this morning whether you will be a victim or a victor. You get to choose that. And it doesn't depend upon your strength. It depends upon your reliance on God's Spirit. Turn to Exodus 23. Y'all have Bible markers? 
Everybody have ribbons in their Bible or something you use to mark? Okay. Don't mark this one. We're going to mark one later. Amalek is a nomadic people group, the Amalekites, who live in the Sinai Peninsula between Israel and Egypt. They stand opposed to you and the promises of God. But what do the promises of God tell you? In Exodus 23:20, we hear something that should be encouraging to you. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way, to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay attention to Him. Listen to what He says. Do not rebel against Him. He will not forgive your rebellion since My name is in Him. If you listen carefully to what He says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites. Those are enemies, by the way. The Hittites, more enemies. Perizzites, more enemies. Canaanites, yet more. Hivites and Jebusites. And I will wipe them out. God says that if you'll listen to Him, He will send His angelic force with you that will war for you. He will oppose the people who oppose you. He will consider Himself at war with those that are at war with you. And what did He say the outcome would be? I will wipe them out. Now, I want you to get something. I had a long discussion on the Internet several times about omniscience. Had it in my house just the other day. I want you to understand something. Something that God says is not negotiable. It's not subject to change. If God said it, the Bible says He knows the end from the beginning. If He says He will wipe them out, it's because He's committed to doing it and He has the power to do it. Okay? So whatever your views on how God works, how He gets things done, you can know that if He says it, it is done. In fact, many times He speaks it and considers it done, even if it hadn't been carried out in the natural yet. Wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and His blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in the land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Here God tells you in a nutshell how this works. There will be Amalekites in your life. They will move into a position to oppose you. They will go out of their way looking how to fight with you. Now in the New Testament we hear that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That means that these people don't know what they're doing. But the enemy does. 
And He's maneuvering people in your life to give you a hard time. What does that tell you as a Christian? Get ready for a hard time. But what were you promised? If somebody opposes me, then God will oppose them. And yet we don't see it all of the time, right? He said, well, so-and-so's opposing me and they seem to be allowed to be winning. So, well, what do we do with that? Where are the promises of God? He explained Himself. He would do this little by little so that you would learn to take possession of the land. We serve a God who is a mighty general. He knows the end from the beginning. He has arranged these battles because He's smarter than the enemy so that you will gain experience, that you will gain confidence. You will be strong and courageous and ready to fight. You don't expect it to be over in a day. You know it's a marathon and not a sprint. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. This calls for faith. The reason the church is discouraged, the reason the church is beat down, the reason the church often has no joy, make no mistake, is because the church has very little faith. If you believe that God would come through for you, you would act like God will come through for you. Where there are no actions, there is no real faith. Faith and actions have a relationship where one causes the other. Say, well, I haven't done very good in this area. Good. Do better tomorrow. Don't dwell in discontentment. Do better tomorrow. Amalek wants your life. Amalek is going to oppose you. That's a given. Don't be discouraged. You know it's going to happen as sure as gravity. Amalek will oppose you. But God has promised to oppose him because he opposes you. Next point. They see something in you that they both covet, they want it, and they hate it all at the same time. They see something in your life that they like, but they hate all at the same time. Look at Exodus 17. I asked you if you had bookmarkers earlier because you're going to need to bookmark this. I'm going to read you a little bit from Exodus 17 and then I'm going to take you all on a tour through the entire Old Testament and come back to Exodus 17 at the end. Is that okay with you all? Yeah. You all not sleepy this morning? No, that's good. Nobody's mad at me yet? Yeah. Yet? <laughs> Exodus 17, starting in the first verse. They see something that they want, but that they also hate. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. You remember what I said about Amalek always positions himself between where you're supposed to be leaving and where you're supposed to be going? Where did they set out from? The desert of sin. You need to leave your sin behind you and head towards where God has told you to go. You don't have a right to dwell in it. Now, here's the thing. You think of sin as stealing. You think of sin as adultery, all of these things. It is just as much sin to sit in church or anywhere else with a frown on your face. That's sin. You know why it's sin? If I couldn't quote any other verse to you, I can tell you that the Bible says, Be joyful always. So if you're not joyful, you're out of God's will. Okay? Get that through your head. Joyful is not uh, joyful is not walking around with the mully grubs. No, under no way could you consider that joyful. So don't do it. Refuse to yield to Amalek in that area. The whole community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as Yahweh commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. (laughs) Anytime people don't get what they want right away, they get upset, me included. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Boy, there's the voice of faith, isn't it? Then Moses cried out to Yahweh, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. I heard somebody say this the other day, and it's true. It's very good. I even remembered that I think I've preached a couple messages on it, but I'm starting to get forgetful. What did God tell Moses to do just now? Walk on ahead of the people. Those of you that know this story know God's fixing to do something. He is about to do something for them. Still trying to quit saying that word, fixing. (laughs) He's about to do something for them. But where did He do it? Out ahead of them. Faith always places your provision out in front of you and you have to follow God into it. Provision never comes to you where you're at. It is always out in front of you. Meaning, God says, go to the brook I will show you and you go and then the ravens fly down. The Bible says, go here and do this and I will do this. It always requires you to do something. All of the gifts work that way too. You know, we were talking about speaking in tongues this morning a little bit. That requires you to speak and believe that He anoints it. Provision is out there when you act as obedient. Same thing, that works. That's, that's a faith principle in the kingdom. So the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Did you hear how he referred to this staff? The staff with which you struck the Nile. This is because the shepherd's staff carried on it records of his life. It carried the great things that God had done, the righteous accomplishments God had done for him. God is reminding him, I want you to go out ahead of the people and I want you to take the same staff in your hand that you struck the Nile and saw victory with there. Why is God reminding him of that? Because he's he's about to have to take another step of faith. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Can you think of a harder thing to do with a couple million people standing, staring at you in the distance? You know, this would be the equivalent of God speaking to you and saying, I want you to go out in the middle of Interstate 59... Take with you your Bible, the same Bible that you've read that's given you encouragement to defeat the enemy every time and slap it against the ground in the middle of Interstate 59 and money will come out of Interstate 59 for you to pay your bills. Now, would you think I was insane? You don't have to answer that. I know. Don't make you insult me. I know. You would think I'm insane. You know how I know that? Because I would think you were insane if you told me that. That's the equivalent of what God has asked Moses to do. But why does he do it? Because he has seen God pull off the insane many times before with the very same staff in his hands. Guys, we need to get it through our head. God's delivered you. He's delivered you many times before. Any time you face Amalek, you need to remember the same God who saw me through the last insane situation 
will see me through this insane situation. Yeah, that deserves an amen. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now why did he bring with him the elders of Israel? (laughs) I'd go do this alone, friends. I'd have snuck off in the middle of the night, not woken anybody up, and went and given it a little test to see if it works. That's not how God works. He wants you to take steps of faith for everybody to see so that they can be encouraged by it. So that you can be encouraged by it. I experienced something on a little street called Chime Street in Baton Rouge one time. Now, if I was going to test this out, I would have tested it out privately because it involved, if I failed, getting a beating. Okay, I, I'm not fond of getting a beating in front of the whole world. God appointed there to be a few friends there with me that day. God intervened and I saw a miracle. Today, I'm happy that my friends were there. You know why? Because even when the devil comes and lies and said it didn't happen just like that, my friends are there to remind me, I was with you in the valley and I saw God give you victory over Amalek. What you don't want to do is step out in front of everybody because you're scared of failure. God wants you to do it so you can be reminded of success all the days of your life. Quit being scared. Step out in faith. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, there's a beautiful shadow and type here, but I'm going to come back and read this to you again at the end. First, that I want you to get the, the staff. These are the righteous standards of God. And they struck something. What did they strike? A rock. It's interesting that Paul tells us that rock is Jesus. Now, obviously, I think he means that figuratively. But Paul says in the New Testament that that rock that water came out of is Jesus. The righteous standards would strike Jesus. He was put to death as a lawbreaker. The law was the righteous standards. The law was used to put him to death. Out of his side flowed water, life-giving water, for all of us to drink. In John 7:37, Jesus stood up and cried in a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. By this, John said, he meant the Holy Spirit because He had not yet been poured out. It was through Jesus' death and resurrection that He got the right to pour out the Holy Spirit on all flesh of which we're drinking even this morning. That is life. Now, Amalek sees this. He sees God's divine empowerment on your life. And he wants it because he wants the benefits of it. In the natural, the Amalekites wanted the water. They wanted what Israel had. Water was a precious substance. But they didn't have what it took to get the water from God. If they had been a people of faith, one of their leaders would have stood up and struck the rock. They want what you have, but they also hate it because of what is required. In your life, in your workplaces, in your schools, at PTA meetings, people will see things in you that they like, but they will also hate them because it's convicting to them. They won't want to have to do what it takes to get what you have. They want the blessings of God, but they don't want to do what it takes to get it. This goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Did they both sacrifice something to God? Yes, they did. But one sacrificed his best, and the other wasn't willing to do so. So although he wanted God's favor, he also hated the one who had it. And what did he do? He killed him. 
The spirit of Amalek's been around a long time. We can call it the seed of Cain. We can call it the children of the serpent. We can call it lots of things. Basically, it's whatever is opposing you in your life. Y'all still with me? They see something in you that they both covet and hate all at the same time. Joshua shows up here in the next verse. You know, Joshua, you've heard, I'm sure, in church, this is a name that is the same name as Jesus. Y'all know that, right? When we take the word Yehoshua or Yeshua, all the same thing, and we translate it into Greek, and then we translate it into English, we come out with Jesus. But if you go straight from the Hebrew to the English, we translate Yeshua or Yehoshua as Joshua. Same word. You know the very first time the word Joshua appears in all of the Bible? Right here in Exodus 17. I don't want to read it to you yet because I'm going to, but it's in 17, 8 through 16. First time Joshua ever appears in the Bible. Now, I know y'all want to read it. Don't read it. Y'all look at me. Don't read it. Why do you think he appears? Well, if Joshua is a symbol, if he's a shadow and type, as I say he is, of Jesus, why did Jesus appear? Y'all, come on, give me your Sunday school answers. What would you learn? Jesus appeared as a Savior. Jesus appeared, why else? Anybody? Oh, come on, saints. I take it for granted. Now, I teach you out of the Old Testament, but I take it for granted that you know the New Testament. Somebody turn to 1 John 3. Now, keep your finger in Exodus now. We're going to be back there. 1 John 3. Still nobody knows? Come on! Somebody said it's 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of... No, you keep turning there. There's a little bit before that you're going to read. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, what's the first part of that verse? Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. 1 John 3, 8. What's it say? He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning... Next. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In other words, from the beginning, there has been a devil who did what? Opposed, caused sin. The reason the Son of God came on the scene was to destroy the one who opposes, the one who encourages sin. That's why He's here. Is, he a, is Jesus a Savior? Of course. But the reason He came was to destroy the one who opposes you. That's why he came. Now, why do you think Joshua shows up in the Old Testament then? The reason Joshua is mentioned in Exodus 17 is because his job is to fight the warlike people, those who are trying to lick up the saints of God, those who have dwelt in the valley. Why is Israel in a valley at this moment? They have been fighting. They have been quarreling. With the enemy? No, with each other. You are in a valley any time you allow dissension in your home. You're in a valley any time you allow separation between you and the body of Christ. That is a valley. You are in Amalek's territory automatically because he's a nomad and he will find you because he wants to hurt you. The devil has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Wake up. Open our eyes. Look around us. You're in a spiritual battle. Now Joshua appears for the same reason Jesus does, to fight the enemies of God. Now, they attacked Israel during its inception. The first nation to attack them. 
and divine retribution is in store for the Amalekites. Put your Bible marker in Exodus 17. We're going to come back there, but right now go to Deuteronomy. Is it alright if I go the long way around? I figure God did that. I'm scared if I make my point too quickly, you might forget it. I'd rather leave you hanging on the line for a little bit. Brad's back there trying to guess what's coming next. That's good, Brad. That's good. I'll try to stay a step ahead. (laughs) In Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 17, remember... Yeah, wait, I hear pages turning. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. When did the Amalekites show up? When you are weary and worn out. Now, do you remember God took them a special route so that they wouldn't face too much warfare? But this warfare caused a lasting memory. The enemy always shows up when you are weary and worn out. Most fights that I've ever had with my spouse, most, occurred late in the evening when we were both tired. You need to be aware of the devil's schemes. Sometimes you just need to go to bed. Sometimes you need to go pray. Sometimes you just need to be aware of the circumstances. Brother Piro called me the other night because he's a godly man. He said, Eric, I just want to touch base with you. I want to talk to you about this because he's aware of the devil's schemes. There was absolutely no problem between his family and my family. But because he saw some natural circumstances where Amalek could work, he called to disarm the enemy. That is so smart. The longer you deal with Amalek, the smarter you get about the way that he works. And you learn to head him off. If every time you go to a certain place, bad things happen, quit going there. If every time you turn on the TV, you end up watching things that you shouldn't watch, don't turn it on. You know? Coach, it hurts when I breathe. Don't breathe. No, I'm not. I'm kidding. I, that's, I've always heard that. Okay. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Did it say they cut off the unbelievers? Mm-mm. Did it say that they, you know, attacked the children? No. They just attacked whoever was lagging behind. What does this tell you, saints? The devil's an opportunist. He's looking for you to be weary and worn out. He's looking for you to lag behind your brothers and sisters. Hang just a little bit on the outside of fellowship so that he has the opportunity to kill you. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to relate this to a lion because the Bible does. But you've watched National Geographic. Does that lion go take the uh, biggest oxen it can find? What do they do? They look for the stragglers. After everybody's crossed the river, who's the last out? Oh, you want to see something horrible? Watch the crocodiles eat them. Oh my, makes me cry. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land He is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. Do not forget. Saints, we have a problem. I, I just, I'm be totally honest. We have a big problem. Because we have rest on so many sides. Your lives, for the most part, are defined by rest, ease, and comfort. None of you are living in tents. None of you are fighting each day 
for the food that's on your table. None of you are. There are countries in the world where that's going on, where people do not know how they'll feed their kid. There's no such thing as rest, but you have rest on every side of your life. We're sitting in an air-conditioned room on padded chairs under electric lights right now. Rest on every side, and we have forgotten that Amalek is at war with us. We forget it. We don't look for those that are lagging behind because what do we have need of? We're fat and full. We hear the as much sermons as we want to hear. We can turn on TV, hear what we couldn't hear in church. We can turn on the radio, hear there. We have Bibles all around us. We don't hurt and yearn for anything. We've forgotten we're at war with Amalek because we have rest all around us. Israel was commanded, when you get to the place I told you to go. Now, Amalek's opposing them from getting there. But when you get there, don't you ever forget what they did to you. That doesn't even sound very Christian, does it? We're supposed to forgive our enemies, right? Amalek is an exception to the rule. You know why? Because he tried to prevent the beginning of the nation of Israel. Read you 1 John 3, 8, or rather Patricia did, and I repeated it because since the beginning, the devil has been trying to keep you from being birthed. So your war with him never stops. He's not somebody that can be forgiven. Now his instruments, they can be forgiven. He cannot be forgiven. Y'all understand what I'm telling you? From Exodus 23, we learn that God will oppose those who oppose you. From from Deuteronomy 25, we learned that God never wants you to forget that Amalek is in your life trying to hurt you. Never. Don't forget it. So I would guess that the first rule for this spiritual battle we're talking about is know your enemy. Second part is never forget who you're really dealing with. You're dealing with fleshly opportunists who will do whatever they can do to hurt you. I hope we'll learn from the history of the Amalekites. Would you like to hear a little bit of the history of the Amalekites? Would you? Okay. In Moses' day, they thwarted Israel's first entrance into the Promised Land. Did you know that? Numbers 14.43 tells us that when the Israelites got to the Promised Land, they sent out spies. The spies came back and said, we're like grasshoppers in the sight of those Nephilim in there, man. God pronounces judgment on them says, man, none of you are going to live. Everybody who's of fighting age is going to die in the desert. And they said, oh, well, we don't want the judgment. We'll go fight now. You know who was there? Wasn't the Anakites. Wasn't Og of Bashan or any of the great big guys in the area. You know who came as an opportunist? The Amalekites. Why? Because they're opportunists. They saw Israel weak and worn out again. Why were they weak and worn out? Did they need water? No. They're weak and worn out because they were outside of God's will. The devil's looking for the opportunity for you to step outside God's will so that he can destroy you. 1 Peter 5 teaches us something. 1 Peter 5 says, Your enemy, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's a whole discourse Peter gives, starting in the first verse where he's talking to elders in the church telling them how to act. Then he moves on to young men and says, look, you need to submit to the older guys. You need to be in unity because there is a devil out there who wants to eat you, devour you, lick you up. He's warlike. He's looking for you in the valley. Anybody that's lagging behind, he'll destroy. But you know, when Peter said that, Peter didn't make it up. Did anybody have any idea when Peter compared the devil to a lion? Where he gets it from? 
We forget Peter was a Jew. Where do you think Peter got it from? Now that I'm telling you, he's a Jew. From the Older Testament. Right? Well, why don't we read that account? Let's read 2 Kings, because remember, when I say 1 Peter 5, 1-11, I'm counting on the fact that you already know that. Okay? I'm trying to teach you the Older Testament because you are supposed to already know the Newer Testament. You with me? Okay. 2 Kings 17... starting in verse 26. This is after the Assyrians have conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They've dispersed the people and put in foreigners in the land. Those people have mixed with some of the indigenous Jews and this is where the creation of the half-breed Samaritans comes from. Samaritans were people who were originally of pure Jewish descent that were mixed with Assyrians and people from all over the world within the land of Israel, specifically in the northern kingdom. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of the country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what He requires. The king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. Who is the devil looking to pick off? He's looking to pick off those that are not founded in the Word of God. They don't know what he requires. They don't understand how this works and they're liable to forget who Amalek is. They're liable to forget that every day is a spiritual battle and they need to keep their wits about them. Peter was referring back to this event because all of his readers knew what he was talking about. He called the devil like a roaring lion because roaring lions had gone through Israel and devoured everybody who was not founded in the Word of God. Guys, when you were battling with Amalek, we need to learn from the history. We need to learn that in Moses' day, they thwarted Israel because they didn't believe the plan of God. They didn't believe it. They weren't founded in God's Word enough to believe that God's Word was true. And they were right there. Amalek was right there waiting for them to step out of God's will so that he could take a great big bite out of them. Moving on from there in Moses' day, we see that the spirit of Amalek knows that God opposes him. You remember Exodus 23 said that he would oppose, God would oppose anybody that opposed his children? Even pagan prophets are aware that the destruction of Amalek is inevitable. Turn with me to Numbers 24. Numbers 24, starting in verse 15. Tell me when you're there. Balaam. Everybody remember who Balaam is? He was hired. He was a foreign prophet hired by the king Balak to prophesy against Israel because the guy, even as a foreigner, was prophesying correctly. Then he uttered his oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. Sounds almost a little braggadocious, doesn't it? (laughs) Seems to know what he can do. 
I see Him, but not now. I behold Him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the forehead of Moab, the skulls of the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. When you hear that, what do you hear? When you hear that a scepter, a star, is going to rise out of Israel and crush the enemies of God, what do you hear? Who do you think that is? Jesus. That's the first thing you hear, right? First thing you think. If you were an Israelite, if you were a national Jew today, what do you think you would read that and see? David. You know why? David's the first king in Israel who crushed all of these people groups. The very first one. I'll give you a hint. The reason he says, I see him, but not near. Uh, how else does he say it? The oracle of Baal, Son of Beor. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out. A scepter will rise. It's because he's talking about two people who will do the same thing. Couldn't you say that one was the scepter and the other was the star? One was the king, the natural king, and the other was the star that would come from heaven? It was prophesied, and all of the powers in the earth knew that Amalek was an enemy of God. Knew that Amalek was opposed to God and God was opposed to him. How did we know God was opposed to to the Amalekites? Because Exodus 23 says, If you oppose Israel, I'll oppose you. So they knew it, and he prophesied about it. So wouldn't you think God would just wipe them out? No, you remember he said he would do it little by little. The spirit of Amalek knows that God opposes him. Even pagan prophets are aware of the destruction of Amalek and that it's inevitable. I read you Numbers 24 where the pagan prophet prophesied it. Does that remind you of anybody's destruction who is inevitable and he knows it? Satan. Satan in Revelation 12.12, it says he was cast to the earth and he is kicked off. You know why? He knows his time is short. In other words, he knows he has a limited opportunity to destroy God's work before his judgment is coming. He never forgets that. But the church falls asleep at the wheel. He never forgets he's at war with us, but sometimes we forget we're at war with him. Revelation 12.12 says the devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. In the time period of the judges, moving on from Moses' day, you see a quality of the Amalekites that is a quality of everybody who's used of the instrument of Satan. They teamed up, the Amalekites did, with Eglon to subjugate Israel. In fact, the Amalekites teamed up with the Moabites, who was Eglon, This is the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. These tribes never could get along, not at any time. But when Israel was in the land, they could all agree that they hated Israel. So they would unite together to oppress Israel. It's a funny thing about worldly people. They will fight all day long, hate each other, but when it comes to opposing you, there will be one united front. Why is that? They see something in you that they both like and despise all at the same time. They want it, but they don't want to do what it takes to get it. They have a common hatred for the things of God because it's convicting to them. So what did God do in Eglon's day? You all know who Eglon is, do you? Come on, see if you head shaking, yes. 
Eglon was a fat king. Does that remind you? In Judges 3, verses 13 through whatever, you see that God appointed somebody. Appointed a guy named Ehud. He was a left-handed assassin who would strap his sword to his right hip. He snuck past the guards because they didn't catch his sword since he was left-handed. He stabbed Eglon through the gut. He buried the Word of God so deep within this king that he died. When you're attacked by the Amalekites, you need to be able to use the sword with the right hand or the left. You need to be founded in the Word of God. And you don't fight like they fight. You use the Word of God and you bury it deep into every situation that opposes you. You cling to it. Your hand freezes to it if it has to. Moving on in the time of the judges. Everybody remembers who a guy named Gideon is, huh? In Judges 6, verses 3 through 12, you find out that the Amalekites joined the Ammonites and all of these other people groups to attack Israel and oppress Israel. Where was mighty Gideon when this was happening? Hmm? He was hiding. He was hiding in the threshing floor for fear. This is the problem with the saints most of the time. We want to stick to our own little threshing floor. We want to look at just beating out enough grain to keep our family alive. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. Don't upset the apple cart. What did God look at Gideon and say? First words out of God's mouth to Gideon. Gideon, mighty warrior. We see ourselves sometimes in a different way than God sees us. God has called you to be a mighty warrior. Before anybody in Israel had ever swung a sword, the very first time the Bible says they were armed for battle. There's an opportunist out there looking to fight with you. And God selects the engagements for the purpose of teaching you to fight. Just like a mother uh, lion might watch her cubs and let them play with a prey. You know, learning the skills to hunt, learning the skills to kill. God has selected our battles for us. He took us on a special road so that we would only meet certain people at certain times. You need to say something with me. It is not too much for me. Say it. It is not too much for me. doesn't matter what's trying to overwhelm you. It is not too much for me. God has ordained it. While Gideon was hiding, saying, oh, this is too much for me. I'm scared. I'm just going to hide out. God looks at him and says, mighty warrior, get up. Then he rouses a huge troop, some 30,000 people. Did God use 30,000? No. Did He use 3,000? No. He boiled it all the way down to 300 to show when I'm with you, I'll oppose the people that oppose you. It's not about your strength, Gideon. I just need people who are aware of the battle. I need people who won't forget who Amalek is. Wake up, saints. This little handful right now could chase all the hordes of hell if we just get serious. I promise. I don't know about you, but I don't want anybody picked off who is lagging behind. Not one. I don't want anybody lagging behind either. The enemy wants you hiding and trembling in fear and God wants you to see yourself as a mighty warrior. Not because you are, but because He says you are. In the time period of the kings, there was a king who was anointed to destroy the Amalekites. He even had a chance to destroy the Amalekites. Who was it? Come on, saints, talk. If you get it wrong, I'll erase it from the tape for you. King Saul. The first king of Israel had the opportunity to destroy the Amalekites. Did you know that King Agag... Makes you want to gag, huh? Agag was an Amalekite. 
But there's a problem. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 13. Now, 1 Samuel 13 is not Saul dealing with Agag, but I want to read to you a couple words here because they tell you what Saul's problem was. By the way, did you all know Saul had a born-again-like experience? The Bible says God changed Saul's heart, that he prophesied and that he was different from that day on. Did you know that? We see Saul as only a bad guy. Saul's not a bad guy. Saul's somebody who was lagging behind, who was not founded in the Word of God. Okay? It's not bad people. It's people who are not well-versed in the warfare of the kingdom and don't understand God's Word. Now, come on. How many people do you think that applies to? People who are not well-versed in spiritual warfare, possessing a thorough foundation in the Word of God. How many people do you think that is? How many people do you think that is in this room? See, I, I, I praise us all of the time because I'm so proud of things that we've done. But think about that for a minute. Don't make yourself an easy target for the enemy. Study. Show yourself approved. When you don't want to get up and pray, do it anyway. When you don't want to fellowship, press in. When it's hard to get to a meeting, do it because it's hard. Show yourself to be well-versed in spiritual warfare, possessing a thorough foundation in the Word of God. Don't quote verses having no idea where they are, never having looked them up. Don't accept other people's doctrine without having examined it, studied it, and see where you stand. Quit being spoon-fed the things of God and take a responsibility for yourself. You're at war with Amalek for your very soul. Each one of you. Okay, in 1 Samuel 13, starting in verse uh, 7, at the first part of the paragraph, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Why would the king of Israel and the troops with him be quaking with fear? Lack of faith. I told you that earlier. If you're downcast, if you're fearful, it is a lack of faith. Now listen, is it okay to be scared sometimes? Oh, well sure, it's an emotion. Is it okay to dwell in it? No. And this is why. Watch what that produces in him. Skip down to verse 11. Uh... What have you done, asked Samuel? Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. When you dwell in fear, your thoughts will not be God's thoughts. If you dwell on a thought longer than you are supposed to, not taking it captive, not comparing it to the knowledge of Christ, and not casting it out, that thought will compel you to do something God doesn't want you to do. Saul was given strict instructions by Samuel. Go to such and such place. Wait for me there. When I get there, I will do an offering for you and the army before you go into war. Saul couldn't wait any longer. He got scared. He was quaking with fear and so he began to think Samuel wouldn't come. That thought compelled him to act against God. That's an insight into Saul's character. might even be an insight into your character. I know it is mine sometimes. You cannot dwell on thoughts that are not godly. They will compel you to do things that are not godly. So what do you do? You cast them down. Now back to Agag. Saul was 
anointed to destroy the Amalekites. That was his purpose as the king of Israel. But in Samuel 15, you find out that he's unwilling to kill Agag. Verse 24 says why. Agag is the king of the Amalekites. Do you remember God said, do not forget what they did, but completely blot them out from among uh, the people of the earth. Verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command in your instructions. Well, why would he do that? I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. Because of fear, because of being afraid, this man loses his anointed position as king, has the kingdom torn from him, and it was given to someone else. Does that sound like something in the New Testament that you can think of? Did a certain group of leaders who were anointed to lead the people into the kingdom of God have the kingdom torn from them and given to another people who would produce its fruit? You know what the same thing was in both groups? Fear. Fear of losing their position, their status, their place. Don't let fear of loss of finances keep you from standing with the righteous. Don't let fear of anything keep you from doing God's will. That fear that you dwell in will cause thoughts that are not godly. What your heart wants, your mind will find a way to justify. If your heart wants to hang on to something that is sinful or not God's will for you, your mind will find a way to justify it with thoughts. Those thoughts will compel you to act in a way that you should not act. You need to remember you're at war with Amalek. All Saul had to know was, this is Amalek, I need to stomp him out. He didn't do it. And he didn't do it because of a thought. David did it right. Okay? I'm going to run out of time. David did it right. David, the king who succeeded Saul, destroyed them while living in the enemy's territory. When Saul was, I'm sorry, when David was taken to Achish, y'all know where Achish is? It's in the Philistine territory. He was run out, he's run out of Israel by people who are supposed to be his brothers and are not. Okay? The church won't always support you in your battles. God will even separate you from the church to see what you do in your battles. 1 Samuel 27, verses 8 through 9, tell. Well, you, know, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to tell you about it. They tell what David did while he was in the land of Achish. You know what he did? He smiled at the Philistine king and he went out and he killed the Malachites. He killed the men, he killed the women, he killed the children. And he killed all of their animals. Why would David do that? Because God said completely blot them out. Don't you think that while you were in the enemy's territory, you would find a way to live at peace with him? That you would compromise? Say, hey, well, I wait till I'm strong enough. I wait till I'm unified with the church. That was never in David's heart. He knew what God's will was. So he killed them at every possible turn. Every once in a while, the Amalekites, because they were opportunists, would see that David was out battling with one group. So you know what they did? In 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 through 6, they came in and they stole David's wives, David's possessions, and all of the men who were with David's wives and possessions. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Do you know what David's friend's response was to this? What are some of your friends' response when they see bad things in your life happening? David, I can't believe you let us into this. Because of you, because of you, we've lost our jobs. We've lost our wives. How could you do God's will and hurt me? 
What about me? What about me? That's what they did. They're ready to kill David. These are David's fighting men. They're ready to kill him. You know what he did? David said, Lord, give me strength. That was his prayer. Lord, give me strength. Then you know what he did? He chased them down. He killed every Amalekite and he brought back every man, woman, child, beast, and bag of grain that the Amalekites stood. You need a heart in you that even if your friends desert you, says, I will go after the enemy, I will go into his camp, and I will take back everything that he's tried to steal from me. Devil, if you push me a foot, you need to know I'm going to take you ten in the other direction. If our number shrinks in here, all that means is I need to get more people filled with the Holy Ghost. I need to get more people saved. That needs to be our attitude. By the way, you see that in 1 Samuel 30, verses 17 through 19. I'm having to skip some of this so we can finish. When David became king, when he gets to be the man, 2 Samuel 8 says that he starts laying down his enemies and putting them to death. Every third person, every third length of the cord, he killed them. Except the Amalekites who he killed completely. 2 Samuel 8, verse 12. Why would he do that? He's just heartless, right? No. God said, never forget. And David didn't forget. Learning from David's attitude. David had an attitude that said, whether I'm surrounded by the enemy, I'm going to kill the Amalekites. Even if the Amalekites have found a way to carry off my wife and children, I'm going to go kill the Amalekites and get my wife and children back. If all of my friends turn against me, I'm just going to say, Lord, give me strength because I'm going to kill some more Amalekites. And when he got to be king, he killed them all. Learning from David's attitude and how he dealt with the enemy, here's the same ferocity with which you need to act towards the enemy. Nehemiah says something. Is y'all's Bible marker still in Exodus 17? Turn there. Go ahead and turn there. But Nehemiah says something. Remember David said, Lord, give me strength? You remember that? Well, Nehemiah 8, verse 10 says something. Go and enjoy food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When David cries, Lord, give me strength, it's the same thing as a Christian saying, I need to walk in joy. Your joy is the strength of God working in you. Why do you think the devil works so hard to steal your joy from you? He wants you weak. He's an opportunist. To be happy and happy in the kingdom is to be strong. I told you that the word joy appears 218 times in the Bible, right? You remember that? Well, we have all of three, four minutes left. And I'm going to read all 218. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, I guess the word a little bit different here. Yeah. <clears throat> he basically gave three terms uh, all differently, but they could mean one word weak. It was uh, weak, thirsty, tired. Weak, thirsty, and tired. You know how Deuteronomy says it? We read it earlier. Weary and worn out. How many times have you thought to yourself, I'm just so tired. I just can't go on anymore. That's right when the enemy is right there. In fact, he's telling you that. Because he knows if he can get you to separate from the pack, he can destroy your life. You know who the first person in the Bible is to frown? 
Genesis 4, verse 6. Don't turn there. Stay in Exodus. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Friends, when you walk around with a great big frown on your face, you are showing everybody, including God, something is wrong here. You remember what Jesus, what the shepherds said? I'm sorry, the angel said to the shepherds the night Jesus was born? I bring you good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. So if there's not great joy present in your lives, what else is not present in your lives? The good news. You cannot claim to have received the best news that mankind has ever received and walk around with a frown on your face. You can't. Smile can be the biggest statement of faith you ever make. Look at somebody in a concentration camp whose mother and father were just killed and when you look at them, they smile at you and tell me that's not a statement of faith. And you can't smile when your job's a little bit uncertain. Come on, guys. We certainly can. First thing Jesus said when He was raised from the dead and He saw His apostles is, be of good cheer. It's a statement of faith to put a smile on your face. Some have said it's the cheapest facelift that money can buy. All of you are more attractive when you smile. All of you are. I promise that. I want to give you a real basic example here and then we're going to read Exodus 17. Right? When you smile, you can think of that as a great big bowl ready to receive from God. When you frown, that bowl's been turned upside down, it's emptied and it will shed the blessings of God everywhere but in your life. They'll fall to everybody around you Angry, sad people never get anything from God. Happy people always do. Now, here's what's funny. It's the cause and effect rule. Angry people say, well, I'm angry because I never get anything from God, not realizing that that's the cause. Happy people are happy. And everybody says, well, they're only happy because they receive from God. No, they receive from God because they're happy. That's the truth. You all in Exodus 17? need to learn to see every attack of the enemy as an opportunity. We're going to read Exodus 17 and we're going to quit. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They encamped at Rephidim, which means refreshments or rest. We're always looking for a place of rest in our lives. But there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses and said... Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why do you bring us up from Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I supposed to do with these people? For they are ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take the staff with which you struck the Nile. Tell me what's the staff. It's the righteous standards of God. And go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Man, what grace. How many times have you been quarreling, been upset, had no faith and God came through for you anyway? Man, let's get it right. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It was because of this quarreling 
that Amalek, the opportunist, shows up to oppose them. He's fully aware that when the people of God are angry, when they're downcast, it's hard for them to receive from God. So he moves in thinking, wow, I'll pick them off while they're weak, wearied, and worn out. Then the Amalekites, these are the descendants of Esau, the warlike people, came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, the resting place. They're there resting, forgetting about the enemy, just mad thinking about themselves. And so the enemy descends on them. Moses said to Joshua, remember this is Yeshua's first appearance in the Scripture, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. These are the righteous requirements, the uh, righteous standards of God. He says, I'm going to choose some men for you to go out and fight with, then I will stand and hold the righteousness of God in the air. Friends, Jesus appeared to destroy the enemy and He chose you to go out and fight with Him and said, never forget, you're at war. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now each one of these guys has their own calling. Okay, Aaron's got one, Moses has got one, and Hur's got one. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. Now tell me something. Moses is holding up his hands on top of the hill. What's that look like? Like this? What's that look like to God? That is a great, big, fat smile. He's holding up the righteous requirements, the standards of God for all the powers in the heavens to see. And this can catch the blessings of God. So while he's got his arms raised to the heavens, holding up the standards, the Israelites were winning. Joshua was leading the chosen men in battle. That's the picture. Great big smile. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. This wins with God. This loses with God. When you've got a smile on your face, you are in victory. When you have a frown on your face, you have just become a victim. You're never called to be a victim. You're victorious in Christ. The God of peace is crushing Satan under your feet. Why would you frown like you're defeated? When Moses' hands grew tired, it's hard to smile sometimes, isn't it? Okay, well, here's Warfare 101. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Do you remember earlier what I said the rock was? What Paul said the rock was? It's Jesus. When Moses, the man, got tired, figuratively, this is the law that was unable to take the people all the way, got them on the right start, showing them the righteous requirements but it had to be firmly seated on Jesus to complete the work. That's figuratively what it is, but it's also Moses sitting on Jesus. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron. You know what Aaron's name means? Mountain of strength. Who was Aaron? Priest. You are called priest of the Most High God. You are called a kingdom of priest. You know what that means you're supposed to be? A mountain of strength. And what is strength for a Christian? What did Nehemiah 8.10 say? Joy. You should be a mountain of joy and strength. And her, her is from the tribe of Judah. His name 
He's from a tribe that means praise and his name means nobility. Noble praise. Held up his hands, one on the one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. When the man got tired, he got firmly seated in who he was in Jesus. When the man got tired, God appointed two people that were in his calling to help him. One who is a priest and a mountain of strength and joy. And the other who is anointed to leadership, who was praise and nobility to hold the smile on his face. Now, I'm fully aware that there are times you get down. You get depressed. That's what the body of Christ is for. And that's why you have to be in fellowship. So that Matthew and Mandy and Steve and Gabe and Brad and David can help you prop up the corners of your mouth. But Moses was willing the whole time. He was willing. He brought them up there with him for a purpose. As long as they did this, they won. As long as you can smile in the face of your enemy, you win. God laughs, laughs when the entire world, save His kingdom, march against His kingdom to destroy it. He looks at them and laughs. And yet we're overcome by circumstance? Cannot be. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord and the Lord will be at war against Amalek from generation to generation. You know what the smile on your face really shows? It's like a banner across your face that says, I'm at war with Amalek and I'm winning because the Lord opposes those who oppose me. Oh, it may look like I'm in slavery. It may look like I'm suffering casualty. It may look right now like I will not win, but watch this. There's the banner on my face that says God opposes you. Guys, this is spiritual warfare. It's not reading books by fanciful authors telling you what their dreams and visions were. Spiritual warfare is maintaining joy in the darkest of circumstances and being contagious with it. It's spreading everywhere. And if you do this, you are absolutely undefeatable. You cannot be overcome because God will oppose whoever is opposing you and you're prepared to receive Him and help Him. Your life becomes like a banner. What are banners for? They display information. Your life will be like an epistle, a living epistle, displaying the glory of God. That's what it's supposed to. That's what Moses named it, the altar there. You are that altar now. Let me ask you something. What does the banner on your face say? Does it say victor or victim? I'm going to choose to be the victor. I'm going to believe that the Lord is opposing whoever opposes me. And like David... Even if everybody stones me, I'm just going to say, Lord, give me strength. And I'm going to show that strength by the smile on my face. When you are happy, you are strong. Stand up. Let's pray.